You'll please take your Bibles and turn to Haggai chapter 2. We're finishing our study in the book of Haggai. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the last sermon that Haggai preaches, and it's specifically to the leadership, specifically Zerubbabel. So as you're turning, let me again kind of set up the context and give you a little bit of understanding of, of who I am. One, I'm not a fan of close games. I like running clocks and juvenile sports. I like blowout games. Why? Because I like the comfort of knowing that we are destroying the other team. Or maybe being destroyed. But I don't like where it comes down to the last play or the last second. That has never been my style because it puts me out of my comfort zone. I want the assurance of the victory or the defeat or whatever it might be. Well, what we get this morning out of this passage, as you would see last week, we looked at verses 10 through 19, and that was a backward looking perspective. So they were looking back and saying, there is things that were messed up because you did not do what the Lord asked you to do. The verses this morning, 20 through 23, are a forward looking. They're having us to look ultimately to Jesus Christ. But it comes to the leadership at the time and to encourage the people. So let us look to second, uh, Haggai 2 verses 20 through 23. And the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overflow the throne of kingdoms, for I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, has, that has already been prayed that we would come with open hearts and open minds so that we might hear the lesson that you're going to speak to us. Father, humble us, encourage us. But more than anything, Father, allow us to leave looking more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, than when we came. For we pray all of this in Christ's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Impending doom. Now, the first thing that we get is an understanding of this whole idea of shake, rattle, and roll. And what do I mean by that? Well, we all know that every time that you have something and you begin to shake it up, it means there's about to be a change. So when God talks about shaking up, he's talking about a change that is incoming. It's an implied change. And the reason why it's there is to make sure that we understand that he's there to disturb our comfort zone. He's there to stir the people. Now, this is a good thing. It doesn't feel good because if we're honest, we all like comfort. 
We like routine. We like the status quo. We like to have the same thing over and over, even if we have every once in a while a change and we, we want to uh, mess it up. And so we're going to have our, our toast before the coffee instead of having coffee before the toast. For, for the most part, we all like the status quo. We like our comfort. We like our routine. But God is saying, and that's what I want you to understand, it's God who's saying, I'm about to shake things up. Now, this is a big deal for us to understand because we know that God has a plan and it's effective. It's not like our plans. It's not like our plans that get changed by things, by pandemics. God's plans are perfect and he is in control and effective all the time. And so therefore, we should rest we should rest in knowing that God is in control. And when he says he's about to uh, shake things up, we can rest in knowing it doesn't matter how he does it. And the way that he says this for the people, he says, there's going to become impending destruction. Now, the first time that he said, I'm going to shake things up, he said, I'm going to shake up creation for the wealth of all the nations are mine. He's going to take everything that the people that have to offer, everything that the world has to offer. It's all his all the time. And so he can use it to come and build the temple. And he said, it doesn't look like the original temple. It doesn't have the grandeur of the temple, but it doesn't matter because it's going to be greater than the original temple. Why? Because God's presence is there. And so he's letting us know, I'm about to shake up the world. And so what he's saying is there's going to be destruction that's going to come upon the nations that have now taken them off into captivity. They've been slaves. And God says, I'm about to shake up the nations. And when he says this to them, he wants them to remember. Now, there's things that happen. And what happens is you have, usually have Victoria uh, campaigns. And what do I mean by that? Well, usually there are flags. And we have our flags for our branches of service. And each of the service flags in the president's uh, area, as well as when they go on parade or something like that, they also carry banners. Now, the banners match up to engagements that they won. So the army does it a specific way. And for every engagement, the army has a new banner that they hold on to and they add to the flag. Now, for the other branches of the service, it's usually you have a, a, a banner for each war that is won. So you'll see that these banners are flowing off of the flags when they're presented at, at big events. This weekend, you would see the banners flying off of the flags. And the point is, it's a reminder of the sacrifice, service, and the heritage of those branches of service. And so what God's doing here when he's talking to the people, and he says, I want you to remember back to the Red Sea. He wants them to remember God's victory but also to provide them for hope for the future. As God has provided in the past, he's telling us, look to the future. For he is still the God that never changes. And as God went in the battle of the sea, remember, it's it's at the last moment. Now, I wouldn't have liked that. I, I would have said to Moses, I think you're taking us the wrong way. You're taking us to a place where we cannot turn back and cross over anywhere. You're putting us in a place where we have to go forward. I don't like that. And God says, I'm going to put you exactly where you need to be. And so God puts them in a place where the only place that they could go is forward. But there's a sea. 
It's impossible odds. How are we going to defeat the greatest army at the time with slaves looking to the thing that only goes forward is to the sea and God says, I've got this. Do we believe it? Because it's the God who provides the victory. And so the thing is God wants us to remember that, to look for the future because he's going to devastate the political entities that are around him. But the reality for us is there's really only two kingdoms. There's either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world. It doesn't matter whether it comes through China. It doesn't matter whether it comes through Russia. It doesn't matter whether it comes from Cuba. It doesn't matter whether it comes from Peru. It doesn't matter where it comes from. We don't fight them. We're fighting the world. We're fighting Satan and all of his dominions. For there is only two kingdoms. And God is saying he wins. And as he sets us up for there, again, he tells us that we're in the midst of impossible odds. There is no possible way for victory at this point. They are still a conquered people who were allowed to go back and build a temple. But they're still slaves. They still don't have their own army. And so what happens is, is a lot of people, especially even today in age, a lot of people say, well, all I have is prayer and the word. You have everything. Do you not grasp and understand? Do I not grasp and understand that we have communication with the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who spoke planets into creation by his word is the same God you get to speak to every day. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to come through sacrifices. You go through Jesus Christ. And only do you get to speak to him, he hears you. And he answers. And so he comes and he says, look, I'm going to take slaves. I'm going to overthrow the most powerful army of the world. And I want you to hear this quote. If the Lord is the strength of our lives, then our security surpasses that of the most powerful nations with all of their weapons. If you are in Christ and God is working in your life, you are more powerful than any nation and all of the armies, navies, air forces. Because if God wants to destroy it, all he has to do is bring a hurricane. And nothing that we have ever built has sustained itself against the powers of God. So why do we worry? Why do we get overwhelmed? Why do we get stressed? Because God says he's going to take and he's going to perish the armies of the world. God is the one fighting. He is the one who destroys the enemies. And listen, when that happens, even the most unqualified person can achieve victory in Christ. You are powerful because you're in Christ. And as such, even God uses the chaos within the battle to have people destroy each other. We might not even have to pick up a weapon, ever. Because God will just have them kill themselves. You want to have non-Christians destroy non-Christians? It's easy. They're selfish. Just get them talking about each other. 
Well, who should receive the, the greatest victory here? Who should be the one in charge? I'm the one in charge. Well, you can't be in charge and this person be in charge. See, God takes even the chaos of the world, evil, the sinfulness of men, and he uses it against them. So the reason and the thing that we have to be is we have to be available to be used by him. Be available. Now, this doesn't mean you're arrogant. It doesn't mean that Daniel went to the lion's den and said, throw me the lion's den, I don't care. He wasn't arrogant, but he was available. And he said, my God is able to close the mouths of these lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't say, hey, please throw us into the fiery furnace. We'd love to go into the fiery furnace. No, they said, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to compromise. And so throw us in the fire because our God can save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down. Is that where we are? Are we available to be used by God to do his bidding in whatever situation? No matter how much we feel overwhelmed or that it's impossible. Are we willing to be used? Are we willing to trust? Then he speaks to Zerubbabel specifically in verse 23. Listen again. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, to us, this really doesn't mean a huge thing, but for Zerubbabel, this means a great deal, because it's God's choice. See, the message, the fourth sermon is given to the leadership. And so the leadership, listen, doesn't just get to think of themselves, they have to look to the good of all other people. And so Zerubbabel is having to look to the, to the goodness of all the people of God. Now, one of the big things about this is that his grandfather had been removed. Look at Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 30. As I live, declares the Lord, though Konah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. For I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country, where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they were long to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Konai, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? Oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. This is a bad day. This king had acted in such a way that God removes his promise that there will always be someone sitting upon the throne of David. Because this king is so wicked. He says, you have been my signet ring that I wore on, that I wore on my hand and you are so evil, so bad, I'm ripping it off and I'm sending you into captivity. And no longer will there ever be someone to sit on the throne of David. That's a bad day. 
So it's a big deal that God comes to Zerubbabel and says, I have chosen you. Zerubbabel is the grandson. He shouldn't be here for all intents and purposes. He should be have wiped out. But God brings back his promises. He gives another blessing to God's people. He says, you blew it and I'm going to be faithful. Now that should encourage you. Especially if you look at your life and go, I'm a screw up. Or I've done bad things. You have done nothing that God through Christ cannot forgive. Nothing. And if you're sitting beating yourself up, stop. Stop listening to the lies of Satan. Christ has paid it all. All to him we owe. And through his blood, he makes us pure and white and holy. And so he says to us, stop beating yourself up for God is faithful. And we are even now, as he has chosen Zerubbabel, he's chosen us. And he says, you are seated with Christ. Now, not future. Which means you are not small and you are not powerless. Quit thinking that you're insignificant. There is no such thing in God's kingdom. You are a child of the king and co-heirs with the promise. And so he says this to Zerubbabel. Then he says two very specific things to him. The first thing he does is he calls him my servant. Now the reason why he calls him my servant is because he is a representative He represents the king. And we see this throughout the Old Testament and leading up to us. Moses was my servant. David was my servant. Jesus was called my servant. We're called to be servants. We are Christ. We're his representative. Listen to Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom God upholds. He's my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That's you. Do you get that? He will uphold you. You are his chosen. He has put his spirit upon you and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You're that vessel. That's what you're called to be. And as he says this, we're going to be, not only be his representative, but we're going to provide service. That's the purpose. See, we are called to accomplish God's appointed tasks. We're supposed to. It's not always what we do, but it's how we do it. Because we should be doing it with zealous, not half-hearted service. If you're going before God and saying, God's saying, hey, I want you to go out and tell the people about my kingdom and about my coming again and that they can be saved from their sins. And you kind of go, okay, if I have to. I know we're Presbyterians. I know we think that only Baptists can bring people to Christ. That's not true. We of all denominations should be of a place because it's not upon us. It's God's who's doing the moving. And we should be so overwhelmed to go out and say, do you know the Savior, Jesus Christ? Nope. Well, let me tell you. We 
We shouldn't be scared. We shouldn't be overwhelmed. We shouldn't be frightened about going and preaching the gospel to everybody. It's part of God using us zealously to go out because we have been called to be mobilized for action, not inaction. We go. We don't wait for the gates of hell to come to us. We go to the gates of hell. Because we're called to. And the second thing that he does and talks about is he talks about Zerubbabel being a signet ring. Now let's look at the purpose of a a signet ring. One, it's to validate authority. It was the power of the king. So he wore either something around his neck or something on his finger. And it had his seal and his seal alone. And so when they would put the wax on whatever paper it was or a letter or whatever, then he would press his seal. And it was the authority of the king. That's what it held. But only that, that signet ring was also a pledge or a guarantee. When he put his ring on it, he says, this is what's going to happen. I'm guaranteeing the words that are in this letter or on this paper. I'm guaranteeing it by my seal. And so when he would have this, it was a thing that was very precious. Because there was only one ring like this. Even to this day in the royal family, when Queen Elizabeth dies, her signet will move from her to the next in line. There's only one. And it will be something that is either stayed upon the person at all times. They either wore it on their hand or they wore it upon their neck. It never left them because it was the sign of their authority. And then the third thing about it is showed the power. It's the pledge. It's the same thing, listen, that what God says to us through Christ is we have been given a down payment called the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance upon which we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. We've been given the down payment. It's assured. If you have the Holy Spirit and he's leading in your life, then God says you're going to have that as the guarantee that you will inherit the King of kings and Lord of lords. All of his things that he has to give comes to us. We have that guarantee. It's a surety. It's a foretaste of the glories to come. Do you get that? It's why we, this is why we taste. We taste and see that it's good. This is the wedding feast and it happens after the great battle. And he comes to us and he says, I want you to have a foretaste of what it's going to be to heaven. So if you think this tastes good, and sometimes I know we've messed up with the wine. It's been, (laughs) but it's going to be the best of the best. The best of the best. He says, I just want you to have a foretaste of what it's like now. So that you might remember and look forward to the things that are to come. Listen again to 1 Peter 2, what Jim already read for us earlier. But you, you, put your name there. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Come to the table, not arrogantly, but humbly in Christ because he calls you, because he loves you, and he's always faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come basking in the truths that you give to us. Because, Father, it's too easy to think that we are insignificant. It's too easy to get overwhelmed. It's too, too easy to become fearful of this world and what it can do. We're fearful to lose our things. We're fearful of losing our careers. We're fearful of being put into prison for what we believe. We're fearful of so many things. And yet you tell us there is impending judgment coming. But for those who are your children, there's hope. There's hope found in the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's hope found in the world that is to come. So, Father, give us a foretaste of what it's going to be when we're with you, whether in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly that we pray. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.